What's brewing ATX? Ian Grossman here alongside my co-host Jonathan Ratcliffe. What's going on? Greg unfortunately is out today. He's got some professional development he's doing. So we'll have to bring some ener- extra energy and drink some extra wine in his place today. Oh, yeah. Uh, we've got an exciting episode for you today. We're joined by Andrew Sides, co-owner of Lost Draw Cellars out in Fredericksburg. Thanks for joining us, Andrew. Absolutely. Glad to be here. Lost Draw Cellars was founded in 2014, and Andrew's here today to share the journey that took place in order for his dream of starting a winery to become a reality. We'll sample some delicious wines. We have a nice little spread in front of us get the rundown about what makes Lost Straw different from the rest, why you should pay them a visit on your next visit to the Texas wine country. As a reminder, this is your one-stop shop for all things ATX, from tips on the food and beverage scene, to developments in the real estate world, to interviews with local small businesses and those making a big impact in our community. Of course, each week we feature a local beer, wine, or spirit, so you can get your little taste of what Austin has to offer. As always, be sure to follow us on Instagram at What's Brewing ATX. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you tune into your podcast. It is with that five-star rating. Be sure to stick around to the end of the episode for the weekly brew where Jonathan will share the breaking news about the fate of South by Southwest. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. All righty. Andrew, it's usually it's one of us doing the feature. If we have beer liquor even wine we're talking a little bit about it but you're the expert today so give us a quick rundown of what you have for us what we'll be drinking absolutely um happy to be here we got three wines we're gonna taste through today i'm gonna go ahead and pour you guys some just because all right always feels appropriate when we start talking about wine that we yeah. should at least have some in our glass to taste through in the lobby by the way so if we want to you know oh. sample cookie pairing wine and cookies that's not a bad deal there <laughs> yeah so you're starting, is there a reason why you started with the white wine? Yeah, so we're going to taste through three today, like I said. Um, we're going to start with the white wine, and then we have a couple reds. I actually brought three that are uh, what I would consider our most popular wines, and also uh, three wines that are finding themselves in a lot of uh, Texas tasting rooms and, and Texas wineries. So uh, the first one we're going to discuss is a Roussan. And all the names today that we have, these are all going to be single varietals. So uh, the names of the wine, like Roussan is actually the name of the grape. So that's one kind of important thing to know, especially for these three wines that we're going to be tasting. But Roussan is a white grape. Um, That's one that you have in your glass here. And it's a, a grape that originated in the Rhone Valley of France. And so for us here in Texas, the main thing to know is that we're really, really trying to uh, grow grapes that are suitable for our climate. Um, Which is probably tough. Yeah, it's it's taking some time to really figure it out, but I'm not even sure we completely haven't figured out yet. But uh, these are three that have been pretty successful for us for multiple years, multiple vintages now. And so for uh, Texas and for us from a quality standpoint, a lot of that is just helps to have a consistency in the vineyard. So Roussan is the first one that we'll we'll taste, and you're welcome to taste it at any time. It's a yeah. tell us a little bit of what what's your strategy for tasting a, a white wine? Yeah, so uh, there's obviously like the most important thing, like when you're tasting wine, is uh, you gotta you gotta definitely smell it first, and and really pull in some of the fragrance of the wine, the aromas, and we're both sniffing it right now. Yeah, yeah, with the microphone in your face, it might be a little awkward. Yeah. But. <laughs> But yeah, the uh, the aroma really kind of uh, heightens your senses for sure, and that's kind of the first thing that you can start to think about. And it's really important as you're tasting through wines and people like that are new to wine drinking and and tasting. One thing I encourage is like the most important thing is like really think about what you're smelling and what you're tasting. Um, it's the hardest thing for me to do. Yeah, it's and especially when it's a uh, like a you're you're going out and it's like a casual thing. You're just tasting wine mm-hmm. or whatever, but uh, it's really important. I mean. Um, the way that your, your brain interacts with your different senses and like trying to remember like what you're, what you're feeling and sensing is important for wine tasting, uh, especially for when you're trying to really, uh, decipher between different wines from different regions and different varieties. And more importantly, like what, what you like and what you don't like. So, um, it's, it's really interesting. We, I mean, I taste wine with hundreds of people 
every year, probably even every month. And they're like, yeah, I just, I don't really know exactly what I, what I like. And, you know, sometimes I like this variety, sometimes I don't. And these wines can be completely different. Um, even if it is the same variety, it's just a, a matter of how it's made, where it's from, and kind of thinking about the things that you're tasting. Okay. And that's how it, uh, so what should we be expecting here? I smell it. It smells good. And I've tasted it now and it it tastes very, very good. I just I don't know what the Yeah, what so I'm like exactly. this wine was um, fermented and aged in a stainless steel tank. So that's pretty important for one, it really uh, helps uh, give the vibrant aromas that you're smelling very fruit forward and and when you taste it. Uh, you'll notice right away that it's very like crisp and mm-hmm. pretty light and acid driven. Um, that all comes from the process, like how it's made. Uh, it's, it only goes through a primary fermentation. So the secondary fermentation would actually make the wine a little bit more um, viscous and have a little bit more round and, and a full kind of feeling in your mouth. Um, <laughs> the uh, This one's going to finish kind of acid driven, kind of almost like, cut at your jaw a bit in in the back of your in the back of your mouth I felt that yeah but it also makes it really delightful for food um especially with like cheeses like anything that's got a little bit of fat content like the acid really kind of cuts through it and it really uh did great for this tastes good yeah oh yeah yeah sugar is a tricky one anytime you have like sugar involved with wine tasting it it gets a little tricky but do you swish it around in your mouth or um no like I, I generally like when I'll you know, I'll, I'll taste a little bit and then you kind of just let the wine like roll, um, all the way, like from the, the front of your like palate all the way to the back. Um, and that's what they, if you've ever heard of wine drinking terms, you've heard like, you know, the, the initial taste and then your mid palate and then how it finishes. Those mm-hmm. are kind of the three primary like tasting, um, Stages. points that yeah. you'll, yeah, that you'll kind of go through. And so you can kind of hold it in your mouth for a bit and then, uh, Obviously, once you like swallow it, it kind of gives you a, a finish and like how it tastes and how it like feels is uh, kind of important for like how you enjoy the wine. And uh, that obviously is heightened by types of food that you're eating. So um, the food and your taste buds like interacting with the wine and really integrating with the wine um, kind of kind of give you a better sense of, you know, how well it, the wine pairs with certain things. So, so much to know with this. So, I know. It's great. And every time I do it, so, I learn. Yeah. Why don't we? Yeah. Keep on going. Yeah. Why don't we? We'll, we'll, we'll sample one. We'll talk a little bit and then we'll jump into another one in a little bit because we've yeah, got absolutely. three in front of us. Yeah. Cool. So then I'll just get right into the questions. And the main one being, you know, tell us a little about yourself and, and what your story is, how you, how you got here uh, with Lost, Lost Draw. Yeah, absolutely. So I started, um, actually started out in the vineyard. Um, I grew up in the High Plains, which is Lubbock area, kind of on the top of the Cap Rock, um, a little bit higher elevation, super flat area if you've ever been up there. Yep. Um, but that's a, it's a really good area for growing grapes. There's enough rainfall to sustain the plants through, and then the the weather is really good for ripening th- some of these Mediterranean varieties um, have a little bit shorter growing season and kind of a, kind of a perfect place uh, to grow grapes. Uh, we have a really interesting soil type up there, which is heavily influences the different taste and things that you, that you're experiencing with the wine. Um, more than anything, I think it's uh, important to know that these varieties originated in places that have similar growing seasons and, and uh, climates in other parts of the world. Hmm. So they're not these these varieties aren't like household name but they have been around for ages, centuries. And so it's a uh, So so when you say that do you mean other climates similar to Texas? Yeah, absolutely. So like the the Rhone Valley, a lot of like the Roussan is is a, is a grape that originated in the kind of southern part of France, okay. the Rhone if you're familiar with that growing region. Um and they have a very similar growing season. Um, their climate's pretty similar. Uh, I think Texas definitely gets uh, more climate factors that could negatively impact a, a, a vintage. Like 105 degrees. Or- yeah, and, <laughs> and hail and and rain and during the har- during the harvest season and um, late freezes. 
Uh, growing grapes in Texas is definitely not an easy feat by any means. Um, but uh, the soil type is pretty cool. But I grew up in that area in the High Plains, and my family, I come from family farmers. Uh, prior to growing grapes, we grew cotton and peanuts and numerous other small cash crops uh, just to make a living. And I got into it from that standpoint when I was in high school, my my uh, uncle actually planted some grapes on some uh, old CRP land. That, and it was really fascinating to me because it was something new, something that I hadn't seen wow. before, worked with before. And so kind of like really triggered an interest in, in grapes and the vineyard from the growth of that. And so uh, naturally just kind of got really interested in wine and winemaking and I guess the rest is history. <laughs> so, so fast forward a little bit until, you know, I guess 2014 is when you started, but from what I understand, it was a yeah long process. Yeah. There's definitely like a, uh, we probably don't have enough time in this podcast to go through the whole story of like the ins and outs of how I got into it. But uh, more or less, I actually graduated uh, from Texas Tech with a civil engineering degree and started working as an engineer in San Antonio. Um, kept very close contact to my uncle who I'd helped plant the original vineyard acreage with. And he was a mentor for me, um, not just in like for farming and but in career and business, but uh, I really looked up to him a lot. He had always had good insight on things and he knew that I always kind of was interested in doing something with agriculture. I grew up doing it like in an agricultural family and agricultural area. And, um, they really hit between him and my, my parents really kind of pushed me to make sure like go to college, do get, a, get a degree, do something else. And then this will always be here for you if you come yeah. back and want to do it. And if it calls to you. Yeah. So, you know, in 2011, you know, I'd already worked as a, as an engineer for a couple of years and really didn't like dislike it. I just like kind of always felt like this entrepreneurial spirit, like I needed to go up, come back and do something. And I'd befriended a lot of uh, winemakers and people in the wine industry, just from the relationships we had uh, selling fruit to them and uh, really started talking about opening up our own place. And between him and my father-in-law, who's our third partner in the business, we kind of, started putting ideas together in 2011 and then in 2012 actually is when we decided to that we were going to open up a winery wow. actually held back some grapes from lost draw to to start it and then didn't open until 2014 because it just takes that long to process grapes to make wine so mm-hmm. that's uh kind of the where short did, history where did the name lost draw come from yeah it's a great question we have that like pretty much every tasting that i ever do mm-hmm. um it's not like a gunfight or a card game gone wrong or anything but lost draw is actually a, a dry creek bed it's a name draw so draw in the high plains is just like a, a dry creek bed that really carries water just during like large rain events and uh, the larger draws they're like topographical features that you can find on some maps um, it's a name draw that carries through about three counties and eventually it's uh dumps into the colorado river so yeah, we, we kind of joke, we get about 20 inches of rain a year in the area that we grow grapes, but we generally get it in about five different storms. And oh, so yeah. if you've ever been up at, in the high, like the high plains area during a thunderstorm, it's a, it just pours. Okay. Yeah. It's, well, it's insane. It's just these giant thunderheads, really cool lightning, mm-hmm. big, vast open sky. So you can see it all coming in and, but the, uh, yeah, when it rains, it, it pours like the, the old adage, it actually yeah. does do that. So, and it's so flat, there's just these areas that where the water just naturally has just created uh, to run off and they're called draws. That's cool. I mean, just looking at your, like the logo. Yeah. I feel like that's one of the things that, that. And it's a, it's depicted a bit in the logo and it's really interesting. So all of our grapes um, that we grow are in the high plains up in this area here. And then in the logo, you see that there's almost like this dry Creek bed that kind of flows Mm -hmm. down to the, the hill country, which is where we decided to uh, open the winery and tasting room. Um, we just felt like it was going to be a little easier to get started uh, attracting people to the hill country to taste wine as opposed to the high plains where it's a little bit, a little bit more desolate. So well, for someone like me that usually chooses which wine I'm going to buy based on the, the label, this is one that I would definitely be drawn to. Yeah, it's a cool Texas yeah. look. It's got a, it's a shape of a Texas. And then, like you said, the artwork for those who can't see this. And then Lost Draw with the star in the middle. So 
I could see where there's like a play on in the yeah, and that was that was definitely something that we uh, weren't sure if we were gonna go that bold with Texas in the beginning. But like uh, for us, yeah, we're we really want to be pioneers to this industry, and yeah. um, it's very important for us for people to know that our wines are grown in Texas and not just bottled here, not just yeah. made here. Like we truly uh, are supporting Texas agriculture from the grape all the way to the bottle, and are very proud of the. Uh, the fact that uh, all the grapes that are in any of our wines are from Texas. Yeah, so, so. touch – maybe you could dive a little bit deeper into that, like what the importance is to you guys because you, you're 100% Texas-grown grapes. So why is it so important to you? I'm going to pour some more wine before oh, yeah. we get into this. <laughs> yeah. Tell us um, why it's so important to, to maintain that, I guess, integrity of true Texas wine and what that means for your brand and – Sure. So, I mean, if you go to any wine region and then in the entire world, um, you'll see an emphasis on, on the, the place that the, the grapes are grown and it's not a new concept. I mean, it's been around, mm -hmm. it's the reason that there's so many different, uh, laws and legal, um, makeup of different regions in France and Spain and these places that you can only, call your wine a certain thing if it's from this region if it's actually grown in that region okay. and the same thing applies in here domestically um it's just we're not as far into the weeds for sure in texas um as they are in some other states at this point but uh california definitely is and has adopted uh pretty strict labeling laws as, as far as what you can put on the bottle um but it is important and i think it's you know for us like especially as texans we're very proud people. We are, you know, we're excited when people uh, come to our, to taste Texas wine and we think we can do it as, as good as anybody, not just here domestically, but in, in the world. And um, we're the only place in the world that can, can call our wine, you know, Texas grown. And so that's, that's important. And it's important to me. And I think it's important to our consumers for them to know that, when they see Texas or Texas High Plains or a vineyard on on our label, that they are 100%, you know, 100 keyed Texas. in, that they know that the the wine is grown here. And yeah, I mean, I've been to Fredericksburg and those places, and you know, been to the wineries, and oh yeah, we actually grow it in California or wherever. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. So yeah, it's really, it's, it's uh, it feels different. It's definitely been like a pretty hot topic the last few years, and I don't want to go down the whole like political gamut of things that we could that would feel free we, to we need a whole nother we need a whole nother podcast for that but yeah there's uh definitely um when texas wine first began um there was a lot a lot more production of wine than there was actual vineyard acreage in the state and so there were uh, there were um wineries that were outsourcing fruit from other other states and bringing in bulk wine to uh kind of supplement and to really from a production standpoint to just meet the production needs that they had to sustain business. Yeah. And so we're kind of at a point now where there's been a ton of uh, vineyard plantings over the last decade. And we're really to a point now where we have, have actually kind of from the vineyard standpoint met the needs of production in the, in the state. And it's, it's not so it's, it's not just an easy thing to just, you know, for businesses to completely transition to using hundred percent Texas grown. Right. But, you know, I'm of the belief that it is very important for our, in, our industry, like moving forward um, to, to really utilize the fruit that's grown in the state to really, you know, we, we need to have a distinct product that's from our state. And well, I would imagine there's, there's a lot of pressure too on you and the other wineries here that are you know, set on keeping it all local because I would imagine Texas grapes just in the grand scheme of, of wine, they, it doesn't probably doesn't have the best reputation just from like a, you know, maybe people just aren't educated because they don't, who, who sure that you can grow grapes. Yeah, grapes absolutely. And, and it's very, uh, it's almost misleading if you're, you're drinking a wine that's, you know, from Texas or you, you know, it's a brand that's like, the wineries here in Texas and, you know, one would be led to believe that, you know, they think they're supporting like Texas agriculture yeah. and, and local, uh, locally grown 
products, but it we currently our labeling laws here in Texas have not been elevated to the same as the four states above us that have a larger production of fruit, but we're really working on it. And, you know, the state's kind of, you know, we were divided for a while on this, on this issue. And then it's kind of more and more like kind of come back to, to a place where it needs to be to get our labeling laws, um, strengthened to where, you know, Texas actually, uh, means a hundred percent grown here. And you can know that just because otherwise it wouldn't be legal to put it on the bottle. Yeah. So I'm anxious. What's the second wine here? Yeah, what do we got? Yeah, so this is a, a our Sangiovese, um, and this is. I'm just gonna give a shameless plug. We just were uh, awarded the uh, judges selection best red wine. That was at, my next question. Tell me about some of the awards. So, yeah, so this uh, this wine actually was just awarded the best Texas red wine at Texom, which is a annual um, conference that has a competition. Um, kind of tied in with it, but it's a, I would, I would say it's probably one of the most prestigious competitions for wines that are judged, um, at least here in in Texas, because it's made up of sommeliers and primarily like winemakers or wine certified um, tasters. So it's not just the general public basically tasting wines and awarding one a medal, but it is actually judged by people who more or less know, know what they're talking about, know what they're tasting. And so uh, this wine was uh, awarded best best red at that competition, which we were super excited about. I think Sangiovese has a huge place here in Texas. And what you'll notice about this wine, particularly, it's not just a heavy tannic wine. It's like pretty medium bodied. Uh, it's got really nice fruit on the mm. on the front. It's a cherry. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's well, a, look it's at a, you. yeah. Mr. I don't know anything about wine over here. Sometimes you guess right. I was going to say apricot, but I'm just, I just wanted to think of a random fruit to say. (laughs) Yeah. Sangiovese definitely always has kind of a black cherry note. Um, And we like to make Sangiovese that's very fruit forward. Um, One, a wine, a red wine that you could drink all year. It's not one that has like a lot of really, you know, spicy or harsh tannins on the back end. And so we have a pretty low oak impact. program for this wine and we really like the fruit the fruit to, to sing through and this particular wine is one that has been very very successful in texas vineyards um in both the hill country ava and in the high plains and one that i think has a really really bright future and these are just the kind of wines i think that are the best suited for texas i mean these are wines that you can drink year-round in the heat um even if you're a red wine drinker like you could serve this wine at you know 55 60 degrees and it would really be refreshing and mm-hmm. and uh easy to easy to sip on so 2017 is that when it was bottled no it's a great question so 2017 is actually the the year that it was harvested so the vintage harvested. yeah so vintage is very important um from a winemaking standpoint because it's important to know that unlike other alcoholic beverages such as beer or cider or I guess uh, any kind of distilled spirit is with wine, we can only make wine once a year because it's a perennial plant and we only get kind of get one shot at it. So it's not recipe based. Um, You don't just take a bunch of stuff, put it in a tank, let it ferment, and then you have have something. Um, It's actually you, you take the grapes that are grown in that given year. So, all these factors that we talked about, the climate, the soil, the weather, they all play a vital role in shaping how that wine turns out right. in the bottle. And so that's why vintage variation and in, in different vintages are super important in wine. And that's why people seek after certain vintages from certain areas because there are years that the growing conditions are just immaculate. Yeah. And so you, what you get is super high quality fruit and I mean, what I tell people all the time is probably 80 to 90% of winemaking happens out in the vineyard. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have really, really good fruit, it's really hard to make good wine. And kind of the reverse effect of that is like, if you have really good fruit, you should be able to make pretty good wine out of it. So, And so how how many bottles of of this or or cases, you know, of the one vintage of this year, since it's done so well, 
do you typically have and how long will that last you? Yeah, so our, our production um, on these different wines kind of varies. Uh, some of it's just based on like need, what we're, what we're going to have, um, what we know we're going to need for a given year for wine club, direct consumer, for wholesale. And so you kind of have to build these plans, you know, in, for, for future needs, which mm-hmm. is yeah. sometimes challenging, tough, um, yeah. especially when you're in a, you know, we're, we're not in our super, um, like our growth curve isn't like real predictable, especially for early and younger wineries. Um, you don't really know what your needs are going to be. You don't want to overproduce, but at the same time, you want to have wine to sell mm-hmm. um, if, if you are growing. And so that's uh, thinking about it in a two-year cycle is kind of a, a hard thing to do sometimes. But um, for us, we've really come to a pretty good place of figuring out what our our capacity is and uh, the amount of wines that we want to make. And we're really, really starting to dial in and, and not like take chances on grapes that we're not really familiar with, but really, really focus on the ones that we have like, what you know, work. Yeah, exactly. So we know Sangiovese and Roussan and Tempranillo is what we'll have here in a second. We know those grapes are going to be good every single year. And that's why it's important for, to figure out these varieties that are consistent because you don't want to have a product that's like going to be really good this year, but then, well, we don't know next year if it's, if it's going to be as good. So yeah, yeah, that makes selling it, especially in wholesale, a little bit more challenging. So, so you got the award for the San Giovese for the 2017 um, one. Yes, sir. Were there any others of note? Yeah. So every wine that we're tasting today has, has won an award at a, at a competition or, are meddled. Um, we don't really enter into a whole lot of competitions because one, I'm, th- they are very subjective in how they're judged. And we enter into three every year. And what we feel like is we've kind of made the decision that those three are the ones that give us the, the most true um, kind of representation of, of how our wines are, especially against other, other ones and domestically and, worldwide because all three of them are international competitions. So you'll have mm. wines that come in from here stateside out of California, but then also from other parts of the world if wow. you know the wineries enter into it. So um all three of these have won something, uh medal at, at, at one of those. But I brought the Tempranillo, which we're gonna taste last because I feel like it's probably the most recognizable grape in Texas. I mean, even if you ha- you're shaking your head, so you've maybe heard of Tempranillo before. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So that's kind of what I'm thinking is why it would be a good uh, thing to pour. But it's a wine that really I think was important for the history of Texas wine because it really became the first grape that was like gave us some notoriety. It's like oh Texas Tempranillo, I, I know that's going to be good, hmm. and whether that's you know, completely accurate. I, I'm not sure it's like really the best suited grape from a growing standpoint for Texas, but it is synonymous for being kind of associated with Texas and Texas wine. And so any kind of anything that the consumer can recognize and think like, oh, that's a Texas wine. I know that that should be good. That, that's always a plus for us. That's always a good thing. So yeah. I'm going to pour it last. We actually have Tempranillo Every single year, it's one of the original grapes that we planted in the vineyard. Um, so it's uh, super special to me because it's a grape that I actually had a hand in planting at Lostraw, at the original Lostraw vineyard. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. So it's uh, some of our oldest vines, which also plays a factor in, in helping keep our yields a little bit lower, a little bit more uh, mature fruit generally has a lower yield, which requires less farming to get the quality to what we need to. So that's always a good thing as well. But mm-hmm. older vines generally, they start to, you can really taste the maturity in the, in the fruit and in the wine. And so it's usually higher quality, the older it gets. Okay. Quick question. So I always hear about how difficult and the, like you, you mentioned already, the climates every year can be so different. Not that I would say that the integrity of this would be great because that's not what people look for, but is there anybody out there doing something more artificial in terms of like the climates? Like, you know, in a warehouse, you have the exact temperature and like, you know, growing these plants, like 
Is that something that, that happens just out of curiosity? I mean, it may, I can't speak like super educated to yeah. like a, like a manufactured weather condition for growing. But what I will say is that I think that the different weather factors really yeah. are what make wine so elegant. And no, I completely yeah, agree. it's uh it's like super fun to see like a, a, a grape um, and the wines from vintage to vintage, just based on what the weather factors might be. And so uh, we never really seek out trying to make like a a wine taste the exact same every single year because, I mean, really that's what uh like the fun in it, huh? Yeah, that's what makes it so interesting, and that's why like it gives you you know something to think about and and when you're tasting it, and also as a winemaker, it's kind of like keeps you going and keeps you like yeah. interested in in the product. Like I mm-hmm. I would hate to think about a condition where it was like I'm really striving to make like the same you're gonna have the same thing, thing. Yeah. over and over and I over i was and just thinking more from like a consumer standpoint like i'm gonna have this lost straw tempranillo or whatever tempranillo and it's gonna be bought in the store and they just want the same yeah. you know consistency but i'm sure they get very similar um but i just didn't know if that's like a thing you know yeah absolutely i mean i mean you'll You'll have to, I mean, most winemakers, especially wines that are in the market, um, there are definitely some that are like really, they strive very hard to make that wine taste the exact same every single time. And to some degree, I mean, we definitely want the profile of the wine that's, you know, kind of being bottled for like a distribution account to be pretty similar. Pretty people like it. Yeah, pretty much the same like year in and year out. But not to the extent where we want to like really work so hard to like manufacture it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, we're pretty good at blending like with different lots and really kind of keeping the the core like taste and the, the core profile of the wine the same, even if it may have small different nuances that you can pick up from vintage to vintage. Interesting. So, so I remember when I first moved here and heard about Fredericksburg, Texas wine country, like, didn't know that existed so can you talk a, a little bit about like the evolution from from when you started to what it is now i mean there's there's what over a hundred wineries there's distilleries breweries popping up what have you seen you know just in i guess te- whatever's considered texas wine country so from like high all the way to fredericksburg or beyond and then specifically in fredericksburg what yeah and seen? i think it's important to note that there's there are wineries in the DFW area and like even between here in the DFW area, I mean, there's, I think currently there's over 500 bonded winery permits. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that there's, yeah, in Texas, that doesn't mean that we necessarily have 500 wineries that are manufacturing wine every single year. But I would say that there's probably over a hundred that are actually making wine from uh, either Texas grapes or from grapes out of state, which is exciting and kind of, interesting but uh from the evolution standpoint i'd say it all it really started when in the early 2000s when the there was a law that passed that allowed wineries and i think even distilleries maybe not in the same bill but wineries for sure were allowed to start selling their product direct consumer so that that made a, a huge opportunity for wineries to not have to make like these large production quantities just to get a small tiny bit of margin because they're having to sell it to a wholesaler who's selling it to retail that where they're basically just getting gouged all the way from the, from the beginning. So that played a huge role in, in the, and just the culture in general, like what you've seen in the last 10 to 20 years of bachelorette parties. Yeah. Not so much that it's just, there's more and more like generationally, I think people are becoming more and more conscious of what they're drinking and eating and, um, and, really really like to support like local business and um local wineries breweries um distilleries and farms in general like i mean how many 20 years ago like how many places really marketed like where the produce that they came it like even in even in like you know department stores and and uh supermarkets so i think that 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 culture has really changed um the beverage industry as well and especially here in texas and made people a little bit more aware of it and conscious and really want to seek out like their favorite like local place to to, to drink wine and to support it's awesome i couldn't agree more so just 
even since like me being in college, you know, in the, in the 2010s and, and early graduated in 2013, like the healthy and local, you know, support local is like so much bigger. So I, I, I'm sure that that would be the case for wines, which is probably a great thing for you being, you know, started from the fruit and all the way to, to selling. Yeah, it's food. definitely a, a very important part of our brand and, and like even our brand culture is, I mean, we started as farmers. And so yeah. that that aspect of our business um, will remain unshaken for as long as it exists. Like yeah. it is very important for people to understand that we place a, a large emphasis in agriculture and the farming aspect of wine because it is a product of agriculture and it's kind of hard to really think about but it i mean it is something that we grow and and it's how our family made a living prior to even having a winery so it's really important for us and and it's really exciting to see people that are excited about you know farming for whatever reason so you know i've talked to different winemakers um business owners i've never heard them speak so much on the farming side of it so it's pretty neat to hear that from you um on another note how how does one um or tell me about the wine club how does that work and you know what can someone expect if they were to join it yeah not even uh, not even just the invitation to join i just want you to come out to the winery and just experience mm. um what the winery has to offer yeah uh we do full tastings um Pretty much not in the format that we did today, um, but you'll be, uh, what's really interesting about our tasting is they're very educational. Uh, we have a huge emphasis, like I said, on, we, we want you to know why we're making wine and, and why we're using the grapes that we're using and where they're grown. Like all of that's very important and it's very part of, very big part of our uh, tasting experience. And it is just that it's an experience and it's something that if you come out, it's a, a good way to you know, just drive an hour, an hour and 15 minutes out of the city, either out of Austin or San Antonio. It's a hill country is a beautiful drive too. Mm -hmm. If you want to get out for a a day or two and there's plenty of stuff to do besides just drinking wine, there's lots of shopping and restaurants to enjoy, but more than anything, it's just a good way to relax. And it's a, if you come to the tasting room, you can get a pretty good experience of, of what we're doing out there and, and the different grapes that we're growing and, if you schedule it and make a reservation, uh, I really try hard to be there for people that are very, that aren't just kind of popping in to check it out, but are like really interested in tasting wine and stuff. Yeah. And, and if uh, we might get a barrel tasting or something, something going for them. Nice. So yeah, there's, there's always something fun, yeah, fun how much, going on. How much time are you spending out there? I was going to ask yourself. the same thing. So you're, yeah. you're a farmer and an educator. And yeah. Know. So I can't take much credit for the farming anymore. Um, I'm, in the hill country, uh, 24 seven, uh, okay. basically, uh, caring after the wine side of it. So my uncle is a partner in, in lost straw and he still lives in the high plains and does all of our farming. And, uh, during harvest, I spend a lot of time up there just checking on fruit and mm-hmm. making picking decisions and things like that. But throughout the year, those guys, his, him and his team, they're constantly out there looking out for us and making sure that we're always going to have the best fruit to go into our wines. But, uh, yeah, I used to, you know, for a while I, I did almost every tasting when we first started, we didn't have employees and all that, but now I'm there five or six days a week and I try to make it around on the weekends to that's generally when most people are able to come out and see us, but I'm there a lot and it's important for our brand. We're a small family owned and operated business. And so between myself and my father-in-law, we're somebody's usually there, one of the owners. And, and I think people really relate to that a lot. And, and you're either one in the back with the barrels working, working that or up front, you know, actually doing the tasting yourself. Yep, ab- absolutely. Both, both sides of that thing. So if we have stuff going on, we have wines that are, we're able to taste out of the barrels. We, we like people to be able to kind of see the process, not just what ends up in the bottle, what ends up in your glass, but like get to kind of talk p- people through the different production methods and even taste some wines that are not all the way completely bottled. So you might taste something out of a tank or in a, out of a barrel and kind of, again, think about what you're tasting. Think about like, Oh, this wine in this state tastes this way. And it's really interesting in that regard. Well, you, you use the term, like it's a whole experience. And I've, I've gone to Fredericksburg a few times with family or with my wife and who you get doing the wine tasting is really the, like that plays a, 
the biggest role Absolutely. in what the whole experience is because you could be at the best vineyard out there, the most notable, the one that everyone says is the best wine. If you don't get the right person, that's going to like really just let you soak it all in and, and interact with you and teach you. then it really isn't it. I feel like it changes the whole experience. Yeah, so, absolutely. And I've even been to wineries that I think really highly of, and, and that's the case, but I mean, I, I say it all the time and not in a joking way. I really do feel like we have the best team in the business and, um, there are definitely wineries that set themselves apart on training and education for mm-hmm. um, the tasting room staff because I mean they're just as important as I am. Um, they're they're really fulfilling a role of like really connecting with consumers and and uh, if they aren't as educated as you know me or anybody else that's presenting wine, then then we're kind of at a at a loss. Mm-hmm. And so we spend a lot of time doing it, and um, I think that they've all really bought in and. Um, I tip my hat to them every day for kind of being out there on the front line, but they're the most vital, you know, positions in, in our business because if you're not able to connect with the consumer and and uh, sell them the wine and sell them the experience and and for them to and drink our wine with purpose, mm-hmm. then it, then it's kind of a we're missing the point of everything that we're doing. Yeah, you gave us when when we were tasting, you gave us a few little tips and tricks for someone who's brand new to wine. Um, or they've had wine, but never really understood tasting it or going and buying it at a store. Do you have any like insider tips that you can kind of give us? Like, here's what to look for when, you know, if, aside from, like I said, just looking at the, the, the <laughs> label and seeing which one looks the best and grabbing that kind yeah. of what to look for when you're choosing a wine. 100%. Like, especially if you're seeking Texas wine, um, if you go to the store and, and ask the wine stewards. Those guys are are some. I mean, they're they're very educated, and, and most of them are pretty knowledgeable of most of the products that they have there. But mm-hmm. if you um, want to go support Texas wine and and go buy it on the shelf, just if you go to the section, um, it's very important to look at the label. And if you see like an Appalachian Texas High Plains or Texas Hill Country, or a vineyard that may be on the label, that's a really good indication that the wine is is from Texas being grown in Texas. And then obviously like as you go and taste wine, I mean, that's, if you want to get into wine and and want to become educated in it, like the best thing to do is just drink it and and taste it and think about it. Like we've talked about. And, and if you like something like really take note of it, like if you had a, which wine was your favorite today? Probably the, the Tempranillo, the third one. Reminds of San Giovese. Yeah. So, like, think about like the reason, like that that exactly. wine was your favorite, and you think, oh, Tempranillo. I tasted this when I tasted the Tempranillo, and it's it's from you know the Texas High Plains, and I kind of tasted this, and then when you go taste another one from some other winery or the next vintage that we come out, like if you kind of think up. about those things, and you're constantly like keeping your your palate and brain connection close, um, that's the best best thing to do, and then then you really start. Like when you go, you're not just like going and kind of like shotgun buying wine, like for the label. Like yeah. You said earlier, you're actually like going with a purpose. Like, yeah. Hey, I liked this type of wine. And even if it's not from Texas, like you like Tempranillo. So maybe you should go to this, the Spanish section and yeah. go look, Trust. get a Rioja or, or mm-hmm. something or ask, you know, ask someone there, like, I like Texas Tempranillo, but I want to taste the Tempranillo from another, from another part of the world. And then really mm-hmm. start to compare those, uh, those thoughts and the, and the taste and, that really kind of gets you really interested in it. And then you kind of go down the, the dark web and you become a wino yeah. like, like me. So. <laughs> yeah. I was in California like five or six years ago and I tried a Petite Syrah and I was just like, I loved that one. And then for a while I was like, that's my favorite type of wine. So I would get it and I got one like, I don't know, six months ago here. And I just remember thinking like, man, that was not the same, <laughs> you know? And so I've, I since have tried it again and I really did like that one, but it is interesting. Like, not all petite syrahs are the same. Absolutely. Like, and that and that's one thing to like really think about is like grapes from different regions are going to taste different. And so if you like the petite syrah from California and then you had one from Texas and you're like, wow, these are vastly different. Well, they are. I mean, the, the soil's different. The climate's different. We don't ripen fruit as, as, uh, to a high sugar level as they do in California, which generally leads to a, a little bit less extracted wine so we're not going to get as much tannin it's not going to be as big and bold not as high alcohol Hmm. um so all those things play a factor in in 
why the wines taste different. And so uh, thinking about it and recognizing that fact is pretty interesting. And what he just did there was key. You guys didn't see it, but he poured me the Sangiovese and Ian the Tempranillo because he was listening. Yes. Thanks. <laughs> Listen to our favorites. Um, aside from coming to the tasting room, how can people get their hands on Lost Straw? Um, yeah, here locally, um, we are in most Whole Foods. So that's a pretty oh, nice. good retail partner that we have here in the Austin area. Big time. As in... Um, we're in a few HEBs as well, so just look for Lost Draw. It's uh, the label in the Texas section that has a big old Texas um, yeah. label, so it's not hard to miss. Uh, but more than anything, I'd invite you to come out to the tasting room. Um, we do sell wine uh, online as well, so mm -hmm. that's a pretty easy way to get it. Um, Through a club? or Yeah, we have a wine club um, that, that you can – basically get a subscription for wine it's it, it, you're basically guaranteeing that you're getting all of our new releases every year mm -hmm. so it's a kind of more exclusive wines and things that um you get access to as well as some different events and parties and stuff that we we mm -hmm. do as well throughout the year nice. and we do some really good parties like that is one thing that uh we have it's a little crawfish boil <laughs> coming up we do we have a big crawfish boil coming up and uh in a couple of weeks, it's March 29th, and I would encourage you if you like crawfish and uh, like wine, we we definitely throw it down out there. It's a it's a good time. We have a good event, and it's a we're we source all of our crawfish from a from a Louisiana crawfish farm. So oh, nice partnered with the guy out there, and so we're actually going to harvest the crawfish the night before the boil. So it's like about as fresh as you can get. Wow. Yeah. Nice. Can you give us a, an idea like price bracket wise, like what someone can expect? You don't have to give every single one, but. Yeah, absolutely. So the wines that you'll find in retail, like at Whole Foods and HEB are going to be in that 15 to $20 range. Okay. Um, and then, you know, we have higher end wines, um, especially through the tasting room and some of our older library wines that will range all the way up to, you know, 50 or $60. But I don't think we've ever sold anything over over sixty bucks. I, I kind of feel pretty comfortable in that that twenty to forty dollar range for some of our more exclusive wines. I think that could be one of the biggest barriers to entry for someone that's wanting to try a new wine. You know, if you go and it's your first time, you don't know if you're going to like it, and it's fifty bucks or sure, so sure. And that's why it's always important to go taste. Like exactly. you, if you come to the winery and do a tasting, it'll cost you 15 bucks. You get to taste six and my guys usually pour an extra wine or two. Yeah, yeah. And so you get to taste a bunch of different wines and you'll find what you, what you really like. And that gives you the opportunity to really think about those things, the wines that you like. And then uh, if you want to take some home to have at a later date, then you have that option as well. Perfect. Any parting words? Before we get into our little rapid fire game. Now this has been fun. I hope you guys have enjoyed the, the wine and the company. Oh, yeah, it's, it's been, been great. Delicious. Yeah. Really good. So we're going to just play a little game here. Uh-oh. Ian, what's the game? Game is rapid fire. Okay. Um, basically, we have some questions. Think of what comes to your mind first and just blurt it out. All right. Simple. Interesting. We've All gotten right. a lot of interesting uh, responses over the, over the week. So, so first question. Favorite restaurant in Fredericksburg? Otto's. The, the schnitzel, right? That's what Yeah, it's like for. a German-inspired German um, menu, but it's it's really it's well done. Those guys have done a really good job procuring local stuff. Otto's. Favorite wine for pairings this spring? Like, give us your rose. wine and, and what, to, what to eat it with. Uh, I would say rosé and a pool. A okay. pool? A what? Yeah, that's what I pair it with is a pool. Oh, yeah. A pool. I was like. <laughs> yeah, if you're eating pool? crawfish, too, it's actually pretty good with crawfish as well. We're okay. we're in the crawfish season now. so March 29th, right? Yeah. All right. Best wine, aside from yours, you've ever tasted? I would say a wine from the Hermitage region. Mm -hmm. um, favorite wine that I've ever had, yeah. Nice. What's a country that you've never been to that you'd love to travel to? Croatia. Ooh. It was fast. I actually had a trip planned there, and we had to move it. So oh. we're still going to go. Still going to go. That's still Good. the number one spot. Red or white? I would say red most of the time for me. Your favorite non-wine drink? A martini. Dry martini. Dry martini. Okay. Tito's? No. Tito's. <laughs> I don't want to get political, okay. but Tito's is like they kind of do the, the advertising thing that I'm not a real big fan of. So Okay. So no Tito's. So what kind of what kind of vodka? 
Um, I would say anything that's distilled locally, or I like Belvedere a lot. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Napa or Fredericksburg? Is that for me? I mean, I live in Fredericksburg, so I would say Napa, but I think uh, interesting. Okay, to get out. Yeah, I mean, Change the, the cool thing is like, you know, Fredericksburg is. I know this was supposed to be rapid fire, and I'm it's diving right. into it. The happens. Hole. It so Fredericksburg is now the second most traveled wine destination in the country, behind Napa. Wow. Um, and so, like, if you live in and around Texas, and don't want to go all the way out to Napa and pay $200 for a Napa cab that might be a little over-extracted, high alcohol, with a little VA problem going on, then come out to Texas and try what's what's going on in your backyard. So, I had, I had no idea it was that popular. Yeah, it it's pretty it's Texas. pretty insane. Like the Fredericksburg has about 10 to 12,000 people that actually live in city limits, but Every weekend, they estimate that there's thirty to thirty-five thousand people in Fredericksburg every wow. weekend, and that's not even counting the big high volume weekends when there's a festival or something mm-hmm. going on. But right. it, there's people coming from. It's not just in in the state either. There's a lot of uh, East Coast people that are like, I don't want to go all the way to Napa. I'm yeah. just going to stop in Fredericksburg. So one of the best parts is you can stay in Austin and yeah. do like a chartered thing or even an Uber. I've done an Uber out to Fredericksburg and. And coming back, it was, you know, you can get dropped off before Fredericksburg, like in high or somewhere sure, closer sure. and then kind of make your way. But if you come back from Fredericksburg, it's like a $90 Uber. So if you have three people in the car, yeah, oh, it's, it's totally worth it too, to especially to if you're drinking all day. Yeah. Exactly. And you don't have to get a hotel, which is pretty hard to do sometimes, yeah. if, especially if it's a spur of the moment kind of trip. Yeah. Um, but there's all kinds of ride services now out of, uh, Austin that go out to all the way to Fredericksburg and come back and they'll drop you off along the way. So nice. All right. Best purchase you've made under a hundred dollars. Of a wine? No, anything. Oh, best purchase of anything I've made under a hundred bucks. Last week, um, it was a, a paw cleaner to clean the girl. Uh, Melissa used a, a thing to clean her dog's paws. Okay. Just think about this. It's got to be something like for my kids because I have three young boys. There's got to be something that we've gotten that's been like a game changer. Busy (laughs) for a while. Oh man, that's tough. I'd say like right at a hundred bucks, like the little AirPod things that I got were like a huge game changer for me. So I'm I'm gonna go there. I'll say it's a hundred bucks. Okay. Wireless headphones, big deal. (laughs) Those are helpful. A hidden talent that most people don't know you have. I can sing pretty well. Oh, really? Yeah. Country music. I'm not going to do it right now. No. All kinds of stuff, man. I'm like karaoke king. Like, throw me out there. Yeah. Get some wine in you. Anybody that listens to this now that didn't know that is going to like really (laughs) challenge me to sing a lot. Are we able to find some things online somewhere? Oh, I don't know. I I may have some bad friends that posted stuff on YouTube, but (laughs) I was probably pretty inebriated on some some of this. Andrew Side singing. Yeah, there you go. We got to search. Well, that does it for rapid fire. And you passed. All right. Perfect. That gets us right to our weekly brew. So in case you don't know, the weekly brew is Every week we're going to come up with something going on in our community, whether it's a development, you know, activity, something going on. And as a continuation of last week's Weekly Brew, when we discussed the scare of the coronavirus being here in the Austin area, it has now been announced this past week that South by Southwest, Austin's largest music tech and interactive festival of the year has been canceled for the first time in its 34-year history. With tens of millions of dollars in losses, South by Southwest has also laid off about a third of its 175 wow. year-round employees. One of my clients is actually one of the employees there. Oh, so really? Fortunately, oh, she's, I remember that. she's in a higher-up position. She was on the show at one yeah. point, or gave us good insight for a show. Um, this is huge. It's, um, you know, it's a single week-long event in the year, um, and just look how much loss it can cause. I mean... Not only financially, um, but also in terms of jobs. So it's kind of sad stuff, but um, also seemingly necessary with how much the the virus seems to be ramping up and unclear as to how we can control it. Yeah. Um, 
Well, who uh, knows? I th- I think it's starting to get a little. I mean, I don't I don't know, but it seems to be getting a little out of hand. Yeah. With what's being canceled and like March Madness is coming up, and they've been there've been talks of, well, they might do fanless games. Yeah. They might still play the games, but in empty stadiums. So. Who knows? Well, on a more positive note, um, hopefully so, the 38th annual music Austin Music Awards um, will go on tonight as planned. So um, I'd tell you where to get your tickets, but by the time you hear this episode, it's going to be over. Um, But in other news of canceled events, it's been said that um, United Airlines has had a 70% decrease in bookings this month. And that's probably consistent across the board. Um, you know, there's airlines that are just parking some of their planes and, um, you know, slowing down or freezing, hiring. That's why I fly Southwest. Uh, yeah, <laughs> so do I. Um, that's insane. I mean, what do you guys think of all these events and, you know, travel being canceled? Like, do you feel it's warranted or maybe it's just a heightened frenzy? I can tell you personally, I had a trip to France booked. I was supposed to leave next Thursday. Mm-hmm. And we decided not to. We originally were going to have Italy as the front end of the trip, mm-hmm. and we're obviously not doing that because yeah. they've kind of quarantined the whole city. But yeah. I'm not really that worried about the virus itself. Uh, like even if I contracted it, I think you know I'd live and make it through it. I'd, more concerned with just like the hysteria around it, and I don't want to get to a foreign country and then get either quarantined there or stuck. get stuck yeah. there, or even coming back if. You know, while I was there, something happened in the U.S. And they're like, we're shutting down, like, all flights coming in. And then yeah. I'm, like, stuck in a foreign country for a couple months that I hadn't planned on. So, And I think that's what's scaring people the most, just, like – Just the uncertainty, the unknown, yeah. like, what could happen. And it seems like some of these decisions are – I mean, they happen, and, and then the media kind of freaks out on it. And then – I mean, you know, look at the stock market. It's insane. Stock market. Yeah. I, I think, too, this is, like, the beginning – of the craze, you know, like we're at the sm- the beginning phases. Like it's not like tomorrow, you know, a cure is going to happen. It goes around the world, and then all of a sudden, like this could go on for the yeah. rest of the year. Who knows, you know? Uh, and as far as the virus, like I'm actually not as worried, kind of like yourself. Uh, although I did read something yesterday that like kind of put a hard truth to like the the numbers that are sort of inaccurate or not really all there um, in terms of how many people have contracted it, how many people have died. Um, again, it's it's not like, you know, 4,000 people that have claimed to be dead, you know, because of it in the world is not that crazy. But the, the how fast it can spread, it's different than like Ebola or swine or, you know, whatever that was like very locally concentrated, whereas this is like, can be spread like crazy, you know, and it has been. So it's a little... It's a little eerie. It's a weird time right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm hoping it's kind of, you know, the the virus, they say that it passes and spreads, you know, similar to like the flu. Um, generally, flu season kind of ends when it, the hotter it gets and like hotter climates. I don't know if that's because it can't survive, but yeah. maybe if we get some warm weather, that'll really slow it down. Right. I've heard that like some of the big the biologists that have studied it say that they think that it'll really start to decline in, in the spread once yeah. once it heats up. So. Maybe the summer's going to be a good thing for it. So bring on the heat, I guess. I guess. First yeah. time. Is this yeah. okay for wine as well? For yeah, yeah I mean, heat? but bring on the heat. I think I think uh, people are going to drink wine. We'll drink through it all. So. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh, at least I hope so. And, and Netflix will be fine. Make as sure well. it's from Lost Draw Sellers. That's right. If you don't want to, if you're scared to get out of the house, you can order <laughs> it and get it shipped to you. That's right. <laughs> nice. The yearly best picks as well, huh? That's right. All righty, folks. Well, thank you for tuning in to today's podcast with Andrew Sides from Lost Draw Sellers. Remember to subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you're tuning in from. We'd love that five-star rating. Be sure to check us out on Instagram at What's Brewing ATX. Andrew, where can we find you online and social media? Yeah, so LostDrawSellers.com is the website for Lost Draw. Uh, you can follow me on Instagram at Mr. Drew Baby. That's Mr. Underscore Drew Baby. Okay. Um, yeah. There's an interesting story behind that. I'm sure you're going to ask yeah. me in a minute. DM him. Slide into his DMs and ask yeah. him about that. Mr. Drew, baby. All <laughs> yeah. right. All righty. Well, check them out and get your Lost Draw wine today. That's all we got for you. All cheers. Right. Yeah, cheers. cheers.